Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by the Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Hour, the LARB Radio Hour. Actually, it's a half hour, but they're aspirational, they're setting goals, they have a vision. The LARB Radio Hour as it is popularly known as a weekly variety show featuring interviews with authors, screenwriters, and playwrights. There are book recommendations. There are amusing analyses of the latest films, television series, and, of course, more books. So if you're looking for another great literary podcast, look no further. Search for the LARB Radio Hour over at iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts or find the show over at the L.A. Review of Books website. They post a new episode every Thursday at www.lareviewofbooks.com. Org, the LARB Radio Hour. It's a literary podcast. Go and download it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, stupid, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is usually done in a hurry. This is starting to feel uh, habit forming. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. How are you feeling internally? How are you feeling? Let's have a podcast. I thought about that. I was thinking uh, before I came on, like what, what's something I could do to uh, to mix it up? I thought I would start whispering weird things into the microphone. Hello. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard, I, don't, I haven't heard too many people in broadcasting whisper. So I was thinking I could break some new ground, start whispering. Why not do that? Why not, you know, why not take chances? I'm a podcaster. I'm in a small filthy room, unventilated. If anyone uh, should have that liberty, it should be someone like me. Do you feel that? <laughs> is that uh, doing anything for you? My guest today is Tony Tulatamudi. Uh, his new book, Private Citizens, has been hailed by New York Magazine as the first great millennial novel. A glowing review from uh, Christian Lorenzen. It's available now from William Morrow, and uh, you're going to hear me talking with Tony Tulatamudi in just a minute. First, however, I do want to share with you a quick conversation with Bud Smith, uh, many of you may recall Bud from episode 373 just a little bit ago. Uh, his new novella, I'm from Electric Peak, is the official April selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The Nervous Breakdown, 
for those of you not aware, is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own official book club. You can get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. For more info on how to sign up for that, go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on book club in the menu bar. So, uh, Bud, I've gotten a lot of mail about Bud's episode. His approach to writing, I think uh, many people found refreshing. His attitude in general. So, uh, I got Bud on the phone literally just a few minutes ago. He's now uh, in, in Jersey City. He was formerly uh, like way uptown in New York City and then moved recently. Bought a, uh, I believe bought a condo or something like that in Jersey City. So, uh, he's a little weary from the move, but was kind enough to take a few minutes and talk to me. Uh, his new novella, One More Time, is called I'm From Electric Peak. Uh, here, ladies and gentlemen, is a conversation quickly with Bud Smith. Yeah, well, I lived uptown. I lived on 73rd Street, Washington Heights. So, I mean, you know, we'd get on the, we'd get on the A train, get down to Midtown in about half an hour. And now I live in Jersey City, and uh, I can walk to the PATH train and get down to Midtown in, in half an hour still. So I feel like, I don't know. I used to live in this dump, this dump apartment, and I was like, I inquired about actually seeing how much it would be if I bought it, and it was like, it's like almost a million dollars. Yeah. I'm like what a what a what a horrible horrible thing uh, to live in, you know, an apartment like that, and you know, for that much money. So I, I looked at Jersey, and like we li- we literally live in like a super nice version of the dump we used to live in, and uh, you know, it was crazy fraction of it so well, good for you dude and like you uh you've got uh, electric peak out uh, how many like, i feel like you've got another book coming out this year too how many books are you writing a year uh well i mean i'm just i'm just kind of trying to keep myself occupied keep myself entertained so i just kind of write on my mostly write on my phone um and it's just kind of a daily thing i'm doing um doing the weekly columns at real pants about the job i work and that's called Work safe or die trying, but I have two two more books coming out this year. It looks like uh, one is called um, right now. It's called Fun Times in the Wild, and that's a collection of short stories coming out from Fun House Press. Um, they're located in uh, London, um, and the other collection is called Dust Buggy City. Wait, like say that city. say that again. Say that again. What's it called? It's called Dust Bunny City. Oh right, okay. And that's about. It's like flash fiction, little short stories about uh, the neighborhood I just moved out of. Just some, you know, going day drinking with my wife and encountering different things. You but, do you do a lot of day yeah. drinking? Is that like a weekend thing? When we live in the city, oh my god, we don't have kids, so I mean, yeah, you know, you wake up on a Saturday and and uh, you know that's the thing to do. Is that a yeah. is that a New York thing? People day drink. I mean, I, like I, maybe I'm just so out of touch because I've got two kids, and like, or I just miss that all. Well, but. I think it's because it is, it's so easy to get around New York on the subway. It's it's just like no one's driving. Right. Um, so it's like, you know, just bar hop, bounce around. But uh, I know, you know, you get out in L.A. and, and I just noticed it's kind of like you kind of plant yourself somewhere because as soon as you start driving around, forget about it. It's just, yeah, it's like logistically complicated to be social in Los Angeles in a way that it isn't when you're in Manhattan, you know, or, you, or you're in New York, like the greater – metro area with like yeah. a- access to those trains like you can get around yeah you can get around um so you're so doing yeah. all the are you doing all this writing you're doing all this writing like last time we talked it was like you're on your lunch break at work you work as a boilermaker you're typing into your phone is that where you do it all or do you do you write at home also uh, i write at home a little bit mostly 
I feel like I'm getting better and better at it with uh, actually editing my work and becoming more of more conscious of uh, correct correctly editing my stuff. But yeah, mostly it's all generated on my phone, and then and then later on um, uh, it gets put into a traditional. Um, uh, editing programs and, and and mess around with um, on a on a desktop. Yeah, it's it's you know it's really tough to uh, it's really tough to edit things on your phone. Yeah, well, and but like, but does like does the 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 writing on the phone freeze you up a little bit because uh, maybe it seems I have this thing where I think like the the method or the mode in which you're writing can have a psychological impact on your creative process. So like I, I sort of can, can understand how people who like to write longhand, why they do that because it seems less serious. Um, and then, yeah. and, and you know, like I was talking uh, on an episode of this show, I think uh, recently where I was like saying that I've been writing my, f- uh, my novel in a, a text edit file in, uh, oh. in, in like a sans serif font, like just to make it just to kind of informalize it a little bit. So it doesn't feel so, psychologically heavy to sit down to work or somehow it does something to me. Uh, is that the case with you and your phone? Definitely. Well, the phone, the main thing with the phone is just, I have it in my pocket at all times. And it's, uh, it's like, a, I mean, but if you think about it, it's really for all intents and purposes, it's like a fully functional computer. Sure. Um, and I would have, I would have killed, I would have killed to have something like that, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but now, now I walk around. It's in my pocket, and and it's all shattered. Anyway, I can hardly see the screen. But you know, it's still it still works. Uh, I got to get it fixed. But um, but yeah. So I write on the phone every day, and just whatever I can do to make things just like you said it, not so like heavy and built up, and just get the thing done. Um, how many words a day? How many how many words a day are you getting? Uh, do you have any idea? Yeah, I'm probably doing like 1,500 words a day about that. On your but phone. I don't, you know, but I don't like shoot for anything in particular. Do you use the voice uh, function where you can talk into the phone and then the phone spits out the text? Oh, yeah. I thought I was hot shit because I was, I was doing that. Um, like about two months ago, I, I started experimenting with trying to just do stories off the cuff that way. Because, um, you know, I think a lot, of my, a lot of my writing is just very conversational anyway so i thought okay well i'll start talking into the phone and seeing what it types up and um and then i just i i was running really late for this writing workshop i started doing with some people online one morning so i just copied and pasted the thing into the uh the forum where we usually look at each other's stuff and uh the following day i just started seeing all the comments from everybody and they're like are you okay Uh, (laughs) is like total gibberish Uh, is everything uh, did you you know are you in the hospital or something? And I was like, "Oh no, that's that's uh, that's theory." Yeah, man. Theory's drunk. Well, it's that, and there's like there is some craft involved. You know, there's something to be said for actually typing the letters. You know, and and putting a little bit more. Uh, yeah, it's it slows you down. Well, or or you're do, or you're going too fast. There's something about like you know, it's like the whole thing about writing dialogue, where you know, uh-huh. dialogue on the page can seem really naturalistic. But it's craft, and if you were to just record people talking and then transcribe it, and you know, in an effort to get naturalistic, it would most likely read like a big jumble mess, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you were to really listen, like people claim that they, you know, they go out and they listen to people talk in public, and and that fuels their writing. But um, I, I tell you what, I've, you know, I've listened really closely to a lot of people, and and they. What the hell are they even saying? Uh, but, but then again, I'm usually I'm usually out day drinking, so yeah, right. So there's that part. <laughs>
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Well, listen, bud, I, uh, I'm glad to get a chance to talk with you again. Your episode from uh, just a little while ago uh, has you know, consistently been getting a lot of good responses. I think your approach to uh, writing and art is uh, refreshing. Uh, to say the least, and uh, I just wish you well with Electric Peak and with the the next two books as well, and then whatever's beyond that. Hey, thanks a lot, Brad. I'll catch you later. Okay, guys, that's Bud Smith, and I thought I would transition out of the conversation with Bud Smith with some uh, sensitive piano music. I'm just messing with your vibe today. I'm messing with your vibe. You don't know what to expect. You're all off balance. That's how I like to keep things. That's how I keep my advantage. That's how I stay razor sharp. Wherever you are, whatever you happen to be doing right now, use this song as inspiration. All right, guys. Uh, I'm in a, I'm clearly very sleep deprived. That's really the underlying point of all this. That's the subtext. Brad needs sleep. He's slowly going insane. My guest today is Tony Tula Tamudi. His debut novel, Private Citizens, is available now from William Morrow. Uh, very pleased to have had him here and to share this conversation with you now. Here he is, folks. This is Tony Tulatamudi, and his book, One More Time, is called Private Citizens. What's more flattering than just a positive review is to feel like you have a reader who actually um, is paying attention and gets it. And um, you can just tell from the fact that he's willing to countenance parts of the book that almost no other review really touches on, which is the stuff that's less... Um, sort of immediately clickbaity and relevant, you know, stuff having to do with um, millennials or San Francisco or Silicon Valley and tech and the way we live now, racial identity, stuff like that. You know, um, he is, I think, the only reviewer who's actually talked about this character, Henrik, who is a quarter of the whole novel um, and is a, r- a really significant one, but one that n- no reviewer uh, seems to be quite as interested in as. Um, the character Will, who's a Silicon Valley guy and Asian, and um, and we're talking about Christian Lorenzen. We're talking about Cl- Christian Lorenzen writing for New York 
magazine. Right. Who called your book? He called your book first great millennial novel. Did you reach out to him after that? Do you ever contact, like, if you read a review like that, do you email the reviewer to say thank you? You wonder whether or not this constitutes, like, a weird social quid pro quo. Um, and, you know, when I've re reviewed books before, and I know that when I'm doing that, I'm never wondering whether or not I'm going to do this guy a favor. It's just uh, you try to be as honest as possible in your view. I, I don't believe that um, he would have... Uh, it, to, to thank somebody for for giving you a positive review sort of implies that maybe you know they wanted to make you happy, which is the furthest thing from their mind, right? So I don't want to like insult anybody's like professional integrity that way. Um, that said, you know I did end up seeing around uh, coincidentally at a party later, and I and I told them how much I appreciated uh, the review and. You know, um, well, it's okay to say. I think it's okay to say, "Hey, thanks for the good read." I mean, that's what you wanted. It connected, and he was nice enough to to say so in public. Yeah, after the <laughs> fact, it's just it's it's strange. Like, um, do you ever find that in within like the literary community, there's kind of a social omerta? You know, where um, with when people have done you a favor, then uh, immediately you you become bonded to them in a way that makes them very hard to later criticize or um, or or even speak objectively about because right. it's like why would you uh, uh, you know say anything less than sterling about this reviewer who gave you such a great review? It, it's this uh, dynamic exists to an extent in all communities, but um, in the literary world, a lot of it is uh, public, right? Um, it ends up being written about. Um, I just try to to be as little involved as possible. Um, Although when, you know, I, uh, that said, I want to balance that against genuine gratitude for, for getting a good review. So, well, it's interesting too, when I think about writers over the course of a long career who, um, get reviewed consistently in all the big papers or whatever, and let's say you come out with your debut novel and it's widely celebrated and, um, you know, the New York times has a glowing review and it's, it's Dwight Garner, for example. Yeah. And then, you know, the next book you write, same thing. Um, and then the third book, uh, Dwight Gardner pans you, you know, like that's like, like I've seen that happen, you know, where you go, Oh man, he used to love him, but right. it, at two Garner. Yeah. At two, right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the game. I mean, that's, and his job is not to do anybody any favors. His job is to react honestly. Yeah. And, um, as, as much as you try to be as sublime and serene about the reception of your book, um, you can't help but feel something about it. Um, I think that just for the sake of professionalism, I just try to keep my mouth shut. Do you, do you um, read reviews or do you let people tell you about them or do you read them all? I, you know, I'm like a salamander. I'm just like so thin skinned and permeable about <laughs> criticism. And yet I've, you know, perhaps for exactly this reason, I find myself reading every single review, even tweets and Goodreads reviews and stuff. I've, you googling? Sort of, are you googling yourself? No, I do have Google alerts though. Okay. So when the big stuff comes out, um, I'm aware of it, and I'm trying for my own sake to to barricade myself from it. But it's just, you know, um, to the extent that writing becomes an act of self reflection or definition, um, it's it's really irresistible to see how other people are responding to it. Yeah. Right. Because you want to see yourself reflected in that. Well, and, and also, you know, you spent all these years writing this book and you did it because you wanted to connect with people. And so you put the thing out into the world and then to totally ignore the part of the process where the book is connecting with people or not seems a little bit strange. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, um, 
I mostly tried to just please myself with the book. Um, I tried not to think about an audience at all. Um, you, that, that, which is not to say that I'm indifferent to uh, its reception. Just that I guess I shouldn't be surprised if people uh, don't like the book, given that it was not written for them. <laughs> you know, you didn't uh, even have like one reader in mind. I mean, just myself. Just and, yourself. Yeah, and that's uh, that's not to say that I don't that that all criticism falls on deaf ears. Um, it's just to uh, it's just important, I think, to remember that if you're not at, le- at the very least pleasing yourself with it, then um, you open yourself up to the potential of failing to please an audience and yourself, which is kind of the worst case scenario. <laughs> um, but. Uh, you know, I'm also a reader. I, I enjoy a lot of the same things other uh, readers do. I don't see why writing for myself and for my own uh, purposes and tastes uh, automatically uh, keeps me from being somebody that, that could other people could find interesting. You know? what, what, uh, why did you write the book? Do you know? I mean, if you wrote it for yourself, you were trying to please yourself. But I think that over the course of a long project having some driving sense of why, like a question you want to answer for yourself or, you know, some, uh, philosophical problem that you want to sort of turn over at length. Uh, was there something like that that you can point to that clearly as to why you wanted to tell this story? I mean, I find really often that the, the hardest thing about writing is not necessarily, um, having a plan and executing it. It's more like writing the question and then answering it. Right. Um, for so for such a long time, you you don't know what you're doing with the book because you don't know what you want the book to express uh, or how it should feel. It takes a long time to to settle on one thing over another and, and discard other options. Um, so for a long time, I had no idea what I wanted to do with it, other than I wanted to write a really good book, um, and also write about things that um, I was thinking about at the time. I started it in 2008, and um, How many years did it take you? Seven and a half years. Okay. Um, so, I mean, counting to today, uh, even though I, I wrote the bulk of it and finished it up mostly in 2013. Um, I find that's often the case with people I talk to where the book is written, you know, nominally over a long period of time, five, six, seven, eight years. Yeah. But there's usually one or two years in that time span where there's a concentrated push. Right. Or and, the, the writing comes more quickly. Yeah. And, and then, uh, in the sort of yawning chasm of time between when you finish it and when it actually hits shelves, um, you, your mind goes to other things and then you're called upon, um, in the most absolutely urgent mission critical way possible to, uh, to, to pretend like you urgently care about it again when it comes out. Um, it's sort of in your rear view mirror. It is right. Um, and which is not to say that I, I don't care about it or I've outgrown it. Uh, just that, your head has to be in two places at once. Publicly, you have to be talking about this thing that you finished quite some time ago and, you know, uh, have probably changed your opinion about in a lot of ways uh, and doing it in a way that hopefully gets people interested enough to read it um, while at the same time, like under the surface, you're occupied with other things. Are you working on the next book? Um, the next four. Um, what, um, like a series? Yeah, no. I, I, I just am somebody who has a r- real attention problems. And it's hard for me to to stay committed to one project at a time. You have ADD. So, yeah, I mean, I take Adderall. You do. <laughs> okay. Um, Can I have some? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just kidding. Later. Yeah. <laughs> um, but 
yeah, it's it's I hop from project to project mostly because it's important to me to feel like I uh, am working on something that I'm really invested in from day to day and. Um, the chances that that's going to be the same thing from day to day are actually pretty slim. That's actually, I mean, it might also be a good way to be like more productive. You got four things cooking at once. Like you say, if one of the projects isn't really doing it for you on a particular day, you can jump to another one. Yeah, exactly. And then that way, you know, you don't lose days. You're being productive no matter what. And then when you look up two, three, four, five, six, seven years down the road, maybe you have like two books done instead of one. It is. It's sort of like a long game, but, um, uh, also, it's just a, a, a matter of play, right? Um, that you, by balancing one form of procrastination against another, uh, you can slack off but still be productive. David Foster Wallace used to do that. He'd have like multiple books going at once. I'm sure a yeah. lot of writers do that. But Yeah. Well, at the very least, they have these sort of potted plants that they're tending to. They, you know, word files gathered loosely around a theme or motif or word files yeah you have a fo- you have folders uh i have folders i use scrivener too um and i have scrivener i need to use scrivener more yeah i mean it's just like a, a file organization system it's like the equivalent of having a bunch of different word files open in a in a convenient form but um to me like the private citizens existed in the form of maybe 80 or 90 different text files um, just collated by almost nothing in particular. When you say text files, you mean like text edit on a Mac? Um, like, no, like Word files. Okay, because uh, I, I want to say, not to interject myself too much into this, but uh, I've gotten to the point on the book that I'm working on that I work better if I'm working just in like a weird generic text edit file because I, it's like less serious somehow. I don't know what that means a weird thing for, it's like a weird affectation i have well the higher the, the perceived commitment to what you're writing the, the higher the anxiety right yeah and yeah the more the anxiety the less you can get it. i was like this isn't scrivener worthy this is just yeah. text <laughs> it's not serious <laughs> um that there's like a hierarchy of of permanence within and then if, if you're really close to finish then you finally import it into like the, the nice indesign yeah file. yeah 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 you get the margins going you get, get the, the page layout yeah yeah um Small caps for the subchapter headings. <laughs> I look forward to that day. I actually think about that. I think I'm going to do that. Yeah. But I'm not there yet. Yeah. Like, I want to actually do a book layout. I want to see how it looks in the editorial phase um, as it would look in terms of uh, an actual publication layout. That can be helpful. Is it a novel? Yeah. And uh, I've talked to, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was Merritt Tierce. Um, oh, she's a good friend of mine. Oh, she is. Okay. Yeah. You guys go to Iowa together? Yeah. She was a year above me. Okay. Well, I think I was talking to her and I could be misremembering, but she was talking about how she either in later stages or maybe even all the way along had to write the book in a Microsoft Word layout that was like book ready, essentially, yeah. with like the hard write justification and it looks like a book on the page. Yeah. Um, and that somehow helped her get a... She she workshopped it like that too. When she handed in manuscripts to workshop, they were laid out in, you know, two pages to a single oh, right. printer, you know, eight, eight and a half by 11 page. And it looked formatted and done. Um, and her writing was always so strong uh, that it almost felt like you were just sort of correcting page proofs yeah. when you were workshopping her. But I sort of get that. Like, if, like let, this is serious. This is a book. Make it look like a book. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, there's there remains to be a dissertation written about um, the way that these, like, technological appendages are influencing writers' approach to writing. You know, usually right now, where we're stalled at and, like, the public conversation around it is, you know, shut off your phones. It's a distraction. Close the virtual door. Um 
and it's a lot more complicated than that. You know, like how can we measure um, the impact that things like spell check uh, or find and replace have had on on people's writing? Copy and paste is a huge thing. Yeah. You know, um, uh, just the ability to make writing um, so fungible and so um, manipulable, Con- constantly editable. Yeah, you know, back in the day, you're on a typewriter or you're writing longhand. It's a lot more laborious just yeah. to make a change. Yeah, and it's such a, a generational thing too. That, like, that when you see um, people writing about it in like a previous generation, then they say, "Oh, it lets you write too fast. You just write a lot of garbage." Or, um, you know, it's I like typewriters better because you can't delete, uh, and you have to commit more to every word. And really, you know, um, people just end up growing around whatever tools are available to them. Um, you know. I still know people my age who type with typewriters or longhand. Um, my friend Karan Mahajan wrote his whole book um, longhand, and that's how he prefers it. Um, I prefer using every single like weird. Uh, I've tried tech longhand. Widget. I've tried longhand. I can't do it. Like maybe I could edit a typed, printed document longhand. Yeah. You know, maybe go through the editorial, like redline a, a manuscript. Yeah. But sitting down with a pen in my hand and writing in a notebook. It's hard for me. I have to see it in in typeset somehow. That, like the visual aspect, and you know, just to continue a little bit with regard to Merritt Tierce and with this whole like you know, have the book layout on the page as you're writing the thing. Um, I have found that there is something that happens to me not a, not only as a writer but as a reader uh, when the visual experience of reading is removed from say a piece of paper like a printed microsoft word document to even something that looks like a book layout somehow the writing gets better and if it's bound and with a cover on it it does something there there's some sort of transition that happens uh i don't know what it is yeah there's there's almost nothing that changes your outlook um about your own writing than just altering the font. Yeah. You know, like getting it out of default, uh, what is it, Calibri or Times New Roman or something, yeah. and into something uh, a little more respectable. What's your font? Garamond. Uh, I actually just type in Times New Roman, you know, whatever the default is. Okay. Um, I try to be indifferent to this stuff and look at it in as many different forms as possible as I'm going about it. But it's true that, like, um, I do have to have a step before sending something out where I'd need to format it in a more book-like thing to see how it looks like that. Yeah. Because even the things like you writers think about things uh, when they're composing, like, Oh, I'm just going to write a one line paragraph, but then one line is different when the margins are different. Right. Um, you think that, uh, you know, a, a, a line that stands alone looks more stark, but if it's just a little too long and you've got a little orphan at the end, then, um, Orphans. It actually does very subtly, but in a way that, that writers actually care about, yeah. um, affect the reading experience. I have to, like, to, to continue my little weird, like, like enforced informality, I have been typing uh, in a text edit file in Helvetica, like a sans serif font that seems sort of like email-y. You know what I'm saying? Just to like, yep. this isn't serious. Right. I'm just uh, I'm playing around. Yeah. I, I've read whole books that were written in sans serif font. Um, and I was wondering, I just feel like, like I'm writing a, or I'm reading a gigantic brochure or something. <laughs> right. But I, you know, I don't know what it is. It's just like that psychologically, that's what I, that's what I've been having to do. And then later I, I will, I will serif the book. Yeah. But this is interesting because there's, um, uh, now people are reading on screens and, uh, on screens, the default is generally sans serif fonts. Yeah. Um, I've seen so- some print books in sans serif lately. 
Yeah. Not, not a ton, but I yeah. have seen some. I remember uh, one, the only one I can think of offhand is Michelle T's Valencia. Um, that that's in San Serif. Um, and it's a great book, but like just on a font level, it made it very difficult for me to get through. Yeah. No, I like a serif on, yeah. on the page. Yeah. Um, so you, you have four different projects going at once. Was that the case when you were working on private citizens or was, um, was this like your only focus? So private citizens was sort of my four projects at once, uh, thing when I started it. Um, I had so many, uh, different characters and plot arcs and, um, set piece scenes that, um, and I had no idea how they were going to go together. Like I've said, it was like working with like a 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzle with no corner pieces, you know, just something that I was trying to assemble and fit together um, in some kind of coherent fashion. And that took me longer than composing it. Um, like you it, composed it and then it was like, how do I braid these together? Or right. Yeah. And uh, it, it was so uh, diffuse and nebulous for because I only wanted to, to work on what I was interested in at the time. And these, th these things were generally completely unmoored from, um, very important things like context and character and um, the the task of assigning them uh, like a, a proper consistent context and uh, uh, you know place in the book and a character to to, to act them out um, took a lot of thought. Um, was I, there I, was there a moment in the composition process where you had these disparate what you thought were disparate projects going, where you had some sort of epiphany and you were like, oh, this is all of a piece and this is one book. Was that what you're, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Um, so, for example, um, I wrote a long scene that's almost an essay about um, pornography, uh, internet porn, and another thing about um, somebody trying to start a nonprofit. And at the time that I was writing them originally, I thought um, these things have nothing to do with one another, um, except insofar as the characters are about the same age. Um, you know, how am I going to get away with being... Um, scattered unless I write a kind of like um, uh, you know Tom Wolfe or David Foster Wallace sprawling epic, and that was the direction it was headed in for a long time. I at one point had a, like eleven hundred pages of just gibberish, you know, garbage, and you know as as um, as I s found the scale of the book um, and and found a way to fit in four characters uh, with relatively equal weight. Um, I, I, I figured out exactly how far I could stray from what I was thinking of as the center of the book um, and how long I could do that for and, and how much I needed to commit to um, the overall running plot. You know, what I don't a relief. Know if any of that makes sense. No, it does. Like, what a relief, though. I mean, it's, it's gratifying, I would imagine, that feeling of, A, I haven't wasted my time. You know, this actually does fit together. I found the way. Like, putting that puzzle together, as grueling as it can be, when the pieces do start to click into place, when you do start to find the center of the book uh, and you can start to feel its structure and you get a sense of orientation and it's not so disparate and crazed and um, it's not such an open question whether yeah. or not it's going to work, that's a good feeling. Yeah, it is a good feeling, although I think that writers use process as a, a psychological defense mechanism. You know, they say uh, things like, well, I had to write those 200 pages that I deleted because it got me to this... <laughs> to page number one, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that there are, if if you're smart and uh, attentive to criticism and uh, attentive while you're reading, you can actually obviate a lot of this brute force, um, you know, groping in the dark 
and, and get to the place where you want to. So I try not to be too gentle with myself uh, on that because it already takes me lo- long enough as it is to, to put this stuff together. I've had to make 410 podcasts <laughs> just to get to the point where I can finish my novel. Just to talk to me. <laughs> yeah, right. This is it. This is my breakthrough pod. This is my breakthrough episode. The book will be out yeah. within a year. Um, so let's talk about you. Uh, where you, you said you're from, I think before we came on, you said you were from Massachusetts. Yeah, South Hadley, Massachusetts. So um, it's Western Mass near a lot of the small liberal arts colleges like um, Mount Holyoke and Amherst and Smith and Hampshire and uh, all those places. Um, almost completely white, um, just white as Greek yogurt. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just have a lot of class photos of myself just sitting on the side, just chubby short asian kid severely uh you know not having it on the side of the of the class photo and everybody else just you know just gerber quality how did your family wind up there um my parents immigrated from uh thailand um they were so they were they were themselves immigrants uh to to thailand from china um and so, you know, we're like a Thai Chinese family in that sense. Uh, but they speak Thai around the household. And um, my dad wanted to come to the U.S. for a couple of years to um, get a, 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 a medical job. He's an anesthesiologist um, and complete his training here. He said he wanted to stay just long enough to learn English from movies and uh, <laughs> and, you know, so that he could go back home and enjoy them. Um, but then he had me and my sister, they, they had me and my sister and, um, uh, ended up just staying here. Um, they're still in Western mass. They've been there like your whole life. Yeah. Okay. And so, but growing up, you're one of the only non-white kids in your, in your classes. Yeah. With the usual effects, the predictable effects. With the predictable effects. Yeah. People were not always kind. A, A horrendous, uh, like people usually call this negative feedback. It's actually positive punishment loop, you know, uh, where, um, for your visible differences, you get bullied, beat up, uh, ostracized, ridiculed. And then so much of this gets internalized to the point where, um, you develop a sense of self-loathing and aggression that makes you even less appealing to, to be around and hang out with. And, you know, I withdrew and, uh, spent, you know, almost my entire childhood in my basement playing video games um, uh, and reading and just consuming every single form of media. That's all I did. I never went outside. I never, um, I had like two friends, uh, like an Iraqi kid of the street who um, played video games and a kid in my third grade class who played video games. Were you guys ever playing them together? Were you, I mean, I don't even like, um, you were born in the eighties. So this wasn't like cyber video gaming where like he's at his house and you're at your house. Right. Yeah. Oh, I mean in the late nineties, there was things like, there were things like Starcraft that you could play, um, over land, but it was, um, yeah, it was mostly just like the sitting around in my basement or someone else's basement, um, either taking turns playing a single player game or playing a competitive game like, Blades of Steel or NBA Jam or something like that. God, so do you think this had any impact on your attention span? No. No. I actually think that uh, a lot of um, the, the the psychological effects, the moral panics around uh, new media like video games or comics or television uh, are vastly overstated. And, um, you know, 
I don't think it was until I was an adult that I started having um, really severe attention problems. Um, that said, you know, uh, I was it wasn't treated for any of this stuff until I was um, well out of college, and I did fine in college. You know, um, you went to Stanford. Yeah. Okay. So you did fine. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't debilitated by it. It it was just uh, made a lot of things a lot more difficult and inconvenient than they had to be. You know, like I was talking about before, sometimes process ends up just being uh, a way to to avoid addressing significant blocks or obstacles in your life, right? And I, I shrugged off the attention stuff for a long, long time because, um, you know, I, I'm really reluctant to do something that fundamentally changes who I am. Um, I think a lot of people are that way. It's like, if I take these meds, what's it going to do to my creative, especially people who are in the arts? It's like, right. what's or it going to do to my creative? Or comedians, like if I stop drinking, am I still going to be funny? Right. Um, and that's a legitimate concern. Um, I think it just takes an am- amount of um, faith in oneself to to say that even if it changes you, um, it doesn't necessarily diminish you. Or um, might make things easier. It might, well, yeah, well, but more to the point, it might make things better. That, yeah, that's what I meant. So, did you at some point reach a breaking point with it where you were like, "I got to get help"? Like, no, I, I, yeah, I actually don't really want to overstate like the attention problems. I have way bigger problems than that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a minor, it's a minor sidebar in yeah. my, in my list of problems. Yeah. It's handled. Okay. And then, um, you know, but growing up, you, you know, it sounds pretty isolating. I mean, were you, did you ever suffer from depression when you were an adolescent? Yeah. Constantly. Constantly. Uh, I mean, uh, it's hard for me to say how atypical it was, especially since back then being in relative social isolation, I had not a whole lot of frame of reference for it, you know? Um, but definitely, and uh, stuff that uh, that happens at that age ends up kind of stamping itself, engraving itself on on your soul for a long time, right? Um, so, any you know, any former overweight kid will tell you that psychologically you're 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 that way forever, pretty much. You were overweight. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, how, how much? Like like. Uh, I don't know numbers. Oh, okay. uh, but I have pictures. All right. <laughs> But like noticeably. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, enough to get, you know, teased and bullied about it. Um, and, you know, to me, um, there's a couple of ways that you can go um, when you face the kind of adversity when you're younger. Uh, one is to um, become extremely resentful and megalomaniacal and say, no, it's not. I'm not the one who's wrong. It's society that's fucked up. We've got to burn it down. I think know? that's what um, I did. Yeah, right. <laughs> it, to get extremely uh, angry and at the very at, at the same time uh, self-glorifying uh, just to have some kind of ad- adversarial pushback on on the the indifference or hostility that you're getting on a daily basis, right? Uh, and the other way is to actually sort of go with the flow. And really uh, internalize the criticism and build up a, a big wellspring of, of self-loathing um, that... Wait, I when... think I did this too. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that there are two directions. Maybe I should say there are two options. There are two options, yeah. Select all that apply. Right. Um, and, you know, and, but, but when you get older and mellow out and have a more uh, nuanced and external view of yourself, becomes a really handy... Um, critical faculty, you know, uh, 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 an ability to criticize yourself um, from the outside, the way that other people see you, because 
simply because you've you've had you've heard those voices and have been applying to them to yourself for such a long time. Well, it's weird too. I think that like as you get a little bit more perspective, uh, hopefully a little bit more wisdom. Like I can sometimes find myself criticizing myself in a, in a in a mode that's not productive. You know, like that self loathing, like self critical voice. But then I can even in the middle of that get outside of that and like find myself being critical of the self-critical voice. You yeah. see what I'm saying? Like there's like these degrees of perception or self-awareness. And I think maybe the, the, the higher up you are, like the more aerial view you have of it, the yeah. healthier you're getting. Yeah. And, and the more, and the further out you are just as, as a writer, uh, the more it's going to benefit you to just being able to, um, see yourself from, uh, different angles and, and a different level of, of authorial distance, you know? Um, but, I don't know. I, you know, uh, there is a tendency in, broadly in culture to look at things that we're not happy about with ourselves or, or hate about ourselves and try to correct them, right? Um, I p- Possibly because I felt um, so sidelined when I was younger and had very little desire to participate in a culture that I felt was like excluding me. I don't know what's um, going on, by the way. There's some sort of loud machine. But... Someone's lawn's got to get taken care of. That's important. <laughs> yeah, but continue. Um, uh, the more that I felt like I had to uh, avoid normalizing myself, right? Or, uh, or saying things like, well, I um, am wrong or fucked up in this way, and now I have to take a certain measure to put myself on like the true and normal path. Uh, and instead, I find it just more useful, at least artistically, to just um, indulge vices. You know, uh, if self-loathing becomes um, a habit and even a debilitating and self-harming one, um, it can also be material um, and something that I can use to uh, as as the basis of humor. You know, like if you can have if you can hang on to the vice and keep it you know, like close to yourself as a, as a, as a part of, of your identity, but also have some fun with it. Then it just becomes a little more bearable. So what kind of vices are we talking about? Um, a lot of them have to do with solitude, you know, um, avoiding people, um, like keeping to myself, judging other people. Um, and because uh, I I can imagine if you grow up in isolation, being treated like shit, um, being made to feel other or whatever there's a lot of anger and like you must have a low opinion of people or yeah. do, do you have a low opinion of people absolutely not absolutely i have just I, I have a low opinion of uh persons okay um and a lot of persons but uh you know uh people are also what make everything worth it right um the ones that you care about and the the, the potential ones that you know are out there um, that you know are going to be kindred in one way or another uh, that you haven't met yet. These are all, you know, um, really good reasons to keep going. Um, so to blanket dismiss all people um, as a teenager would be inclined to be, right? Uh, to, to do, um, is just, you know, it's just a juvenile thing. Did you do um, it when you were a kid? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and, and this is why I can uh, feel my way within this this mindset so easily and shuttle in and out of it uh but you know uh it's it's an evolutionary process which is to say that um it doesn't go away it's just that things sort of build syncretically and like a palimpsest on top of it you know um and hopefully become more articulated and sophisticated 
leading you to God knows where. Yeah. But, um, you know, you can have fun with it. Did you ever feel suicidal? Definitely. Yeah. Like entertain like, su- like suicidal ideation in a serious way? Or was it more just like, ah, fuck this. Like some days were dark. And- Hard to tell, you know, because when you're in a histrionic mood, um, you often overstate things. You often overstate like the severity of your own uh, trauma. So uh, it's really tough to say. Um, you know, I, I, like anybody else, I have things that set me off. Um, but have not really in any significant way acted on it. Um, uh, at least in any any sense that I regret, you know, I've done, you know, I'm not the kind of person who goes and punches walls and, uh, uh, you know, lights things on fire to get, to get things out. Usually it, 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 it manifests as incredibly shrill, um, klaxon of, uh, of critical voices in, in one's head, uh, that need to somehow be expunged through uh, articulation, right? Um, that, you know, uh, it, it rarely translates to, to anything actual, actually physical. It just usually leads to more writing. Okay, I was going to say, so writing is like the, I mean, I don't want to sound uh, treacly, but it's like, is it your therapy? Like that's No, the... absolutely not. It's, no. Uh, it's just like a responsible form of wallowing. Okay. <laughs> constructive. Yeah, constructive wallowing. Do you ever do any did you ever have to do any therapy like to work through this stuff like as you were getting out of uh high school and moving on or I don't know. I don't know. I've battled five therapists to pretty much a draw. You yeah. know, I um I've never really found a whole lot of uh use in it except insofar as um I was occasionally able to out talk my my brain uh and hear things attitudes come out of my mouth that um I would have been more careful uh, careful about putting on the page. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I, I've never found it to be all that useful, even though it was probably a decade that I was uh, in and out of different therapists' offices. you got to find, I mean, it's hard to find, for some people, I think, especially, uh, especially somebody who's got like a really high level of self-awareness and is sort of tuned into those voices in one's head. And I don't know, you got to find somebody who can really challenge you. It's not easy. Yeah. And that doesn't, I'm not trying to diminish people who are in, therapeutic profession i just think some people uh are more like naturally uh adaptable to it or open to it than others or i don't know i kind of i kind of feel i went to therapy once like literally once (laughs) and i walked out and i was like "Ah, i don't know what that was like i guess i should have maybe given it more of a chance if i really needed it but i just felt like there wasn't much there for me yeah and i was going to do this kind of on my own yeah the thing that all of my you know pro therapy friends uh keep on you know, um, harping on me about is that you just need to find the right therapist. It's like dating. And I'm like, I'm not great at dating either. You, you need know? like the Robin, Will- you need the Robin Williams to your Matt Damon. Right. <laughs> it's not my fault. It's not, which, which by the way is the most, you know, ingenious conceit. Like that's all anybody ever wants to hear. Right. <laughs> it's not your fault, Tony. It's not your fault. That, that, did you get a couple of Tony tears in the eyes? Tony. Yeah. It's not your fault. He's, he's like hugging <laughs> me right now. He's sobbing. You can't hear it, but Tony's sobbing right now. Yeah. Um, so you leave Western mass, Mm -hmm. you get out, you must've been eager to, to break free, right? Actually, no. I mean, in high school, it was a really weird high school situation. I went to a school that went co-ed just a couple of years before I attended. So there were five guys in my graduating class. The rest were, uh, women. That sounds actually like a good ratio. No, that's what everyone says. Um, uh, in practice, it usually just means that like one guy is dating everybody (laughs) 
<laughs> and everybody else is experimenting with their sexuality. You know, it was also a super liberal, um, uh, like atmosphere or mascot was the unicorn you know um <laughs> it's not even a joke like no but that in that school was a you found it to be an intolerant place i mean it seems like this no not would, at all i oh. mean uh, so this is why you know things got a, like a little bit better in high school which is the opposite of it, how it works with most people yeah. right um but i met um it was uh it was a place where weird artsy quirky people ended up outnumbering the the sort of vicious normative cliques right um, and so I found people, I mean, you know, uh, one of my friends, Liz was a, a huge influence on me and was the one who basically got me interested in books. Um, and what did she hand you? Like, what was it that you, she was making you read? It wasn't really anything. I mean, she, it's funny because a lot of the books that she recommended to me were really not my cup of tea. Like, um, uh, a lot of sixties, seventies stuff like been down so long. It looks like up to me. And, um, what else? Uh, Tom Robbins. Um, but it was more just the idea that um, you books were something that you could have going on for a while and really be engaging with like day to day um, and could give you access to a kind of like uh, abstruse occult knowledge um, that, you know, back, back then it was about being the, the sort of... Um, um, self-congratulatory like I know this and you don't I've heard of these guys and you don't um, uh, attitude but you know eventually you actually start liking the books yeah and that's <laughs> the the other stuff sort of falls away you're like actually I'm getting something out of this this is enjoyable yeah and is it, was that when you were like I'm going to do this I'm going to write books or did that come later that came way later um, you know it came I think in writing workshops at Stanford um, the first one I took was with Adam Johnson, um, who wrote The Orphan Master's Son. Yeah. Uh, he was enormously charismatic and just the right kind of teacher for an intro level like student to have because um, more than anything else, more than any kind of um, sort of nitty gritty craft advice that he would impart, he just um, gave the, the adit- gave the sensibility that writing and that being a writer uh, were really worthy and interesting things to do. Um, and he was also just like a quirky person in himself. Uh, like he would talk about how he'd gotten married to his wife, his own wife, like six times, no divorces, just like remarried, um, to like reaffirm their vows. And the last one was like a Star Trek themed, uh, wedding, you know, they're officiated by like Robert Nolan Butler. Um, (laughs) and, there seems uh, something some, like, sort of editorial about that. Like yeah. It's kind of like a reperfection or like a refinement of the process, maybe. Right. Or they just like getting married. <laughs> yeah. It just makes a good story, I think. Right. Um, and also in that class was the uh, erstwhile CEO of Nike, Phil Knight. Um, was in was, the class? Yeah. It was really strange. He was sitting in the corner, um, and he introduced himself as Phil. And he didn't put up any manuscripts for a workshop. He was just, like, sitting in. Um, but he would occasionally like chime in and be like, I love this Amy Hempel story. Um, anybody so need any shoes? Yeah. Well, I mean, later on, he kept on going through the whole creative writing track and he gave, I think he gave one class, um, entire class at $300 Nike gift certificates. That's nice of Phil. Yeah. He just made a huge, I want to say he just made a huge donation to the university of Oregon. Like one of those gig- or maybe it was Stanford. Uh, was like, uh, There's definitely, I think, like a Phil Knight endowed chair of creative writing at Stanford. Okay. Um, 
you know, I wouldn't read too much into that. I think that he actually uh, does care about books and stuff. But it's weird because the reason I recognized him, I kept on being like, who is this guy? I know what he was, um, who he was. And um, I, I, it was from another humanities class I was taking where we were watching the Michael Moore documentary about him, which is not, which is none too favorable. Yeah. I'm like, this is strange. Yeah. That's odd. What an, what an odd thing. But I guess, you know, you're at a high level uh, academic institution. Guy wants to like audit a class. He's got a lot of free time. <laughs> yeah. Control over his schedule. I mean, like, you know. Yeah. Rumors definitely circulated in a very predictable way. Like, you know, I already takes a chopper into class and, you know. Um, but we can't verify that. Right. We cannot. Okay. Uh, so you're there. Adam Johnson, sort of the guy that flipped the switch for you? Yeah, I would say so. Um, and then I took a class with ZZ Packer, um, Catherine Noel, and Elizabeth Talent, who's the head of the program there. We took a couple of classes in the in independent study with her. And you were getting encouraged along the way. Like this was something like they were like, by the way, you're, you know, did you get a sense like from them that you were somebody who should pursue this? Um, not any more so than any other student. They all did their job, uh, which is to... Uh, encourage you, which is to show you what the strengths of your own um, early writing are, so that you can play to them. And uh, but you know, I'm, they, sometimes they really went out of their way in ways that mean everything to a young writer. Uh, you know, like Catherine Noel, um, you know, came up to me after class one day and said, "I really love this story. You should try to get it published." And ended up winning the undergraduate fiction prize um, there, and then from there it got published, and then from there it won an O. Henry Prize, which. Um, is actually not that's like really early on you should not be getting that much success it definitely scrambles up your expectations in a in a deleterious way yeah but it's also a good sign i mean you you can see it two ways but i mean that's like that is the universe telling you i think uh like you've got some talent or that you peaked i mean depending <laughs> right? on what your kind of a disposition is and yeah we've talked about that a bit well i mean i don't think you've peaked um, I hope not. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean you, you've gone on to bigger and better things. And uh, I feel like um, more often than not, I mean, I guess there are people who have that like early success that they never are able to, um, you know, muster again. Yeah. Like the Joseph Heller or the, you know, I, I mean, with Joseph Heller, it's a, it's an interesting case because people seem to be split on whether or not he actually be, you know, um, uh, wrote books that were as worthy as his first book. He has the the greatest clapback of all time, though, which is some some hostile reporter was asking him why he hadn't written a, a, a book as good as Catch-22, and he just said, who has? <laughs> well, I mean, and I think I don't think it's fair uh, to evaluate writers on that kind of criteria, like based on the number of books published. It, it's quality over quantity, and these things, uh, you know, like, for example, just to go back to your book, like it started out as disparate projects. You thought you had maybe three or four different books going. It turned out to be one. Maybe he was the same way. Yeah. And it it's... just sort of came together into this one beast. And by the way, Something Happened is also a really good novel. I think yeah. a lot of people feel like it's it's way underrated. It doesn't get the, you know, it's not as celebrated as Catch-22. Yeah, it's Vonnegut's favorite book of his. Yeah. It's not like it's not like he never did anything else. It's yeah. just that he, and and, you know, the media... I, I always call it like the cosmic thing, like when a book is published, how it meets the zeitgeist, you know, why the media establishment decides to pay attention uh, to certain books and not others, the critical uh, momentum, all this stuff sort of coalesces to create a moment for certain books. And uh, nobody, I think, knows exactly why that happens. Yeah, I think I would say that one of the biggest disparities 
um, subjectively about being a writer, working on books, and then um, having publishing books and having them out um, is that you usually compose and you think of your own books in a time vacuum, right? You're, you're like, I'm writing a book for the ages. I want it to be uh, evergreen. I want to be proud of it 40 years from now. Um, but you are evaluated publicly really just by the last thing you did. You know, you're only as good as your last blah. Um, and that can be really, really damaging. Um, you know, uh, you could say that having that kind of pressure forces you to keep up a certain uh, standard or bar. It could also encourage you to, um, y- you know, lean on what worked uh, before. Uh, I- I'm trying to really hard not to um, uh, write books just because I think I need to keep on peaking, you know, um, because peaking by whose measure, right? Yeah. Um, in terms of book sales, in terms of Twitter followers, um, or the number of people who are talking about you, or the type of people who are talking about you. You know, uh, uh, if you're going to spend 80% of your discretionary time writing these books, um, you know, what matters most is that you're, um, you know, writing the book that you want to write. Um, that's what you'll have to actually deal with. Unfortunately, publicly, they don't care. No, <laughs> no, right. I mean, and that's, and it doesn't seem sustainable, you know, to be playing to those sorts of, um, impulses or audiences. Like eventually you're going to burn out on that. Um, you know, I, I think that it's possible to have an audience in mind, even if it's an audience of one. I mean, uh, just in recent memory, I was talking to Hanya Yanagahara uh, and she has like this one great friend reader to whom she is essentially writing when yeah. she sits down to work. Um, but uh, even in that case where there's that level of intimacy between writer and first reader, I think the process has to ultimately be nourishing primarily to the person who does the work yeah. <laughs> day in and day out. You know, you have to be um, growing. I don't know. Is that the wrong word? It, it has to be uh, deeply meaningful. You have to be challenging yourself. You have to be sort of shutting out all those voices and... Uh, you know, uh, areas of expectation. Um, it's tough because, you know, again, to, to go back to the therapeutic theme, um, I don't put a ton of stock in writing as a way to f- feel better about anything. Um, just understand it better. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, but that uh, can make you feel better because confusion can be uh, unsavory. Yeah. There's a distinction to be made here between happiness and satisfaction. Right. Yeah. Um, things like revenge and spite exist in the world because people want satisfaction. Uh, it, it, it's more important to them to be right and to triumph, uh, than it is to be happy and content on a day to day level. This is generally what motivates people. I think, um, certainly what motivates me. Um, what a happiness, uh, no, spite, spite, spite. It yeah. is. <laughs> it's a big one. Yeah. Right, so is that, yeah, he's publishing this book and publishing subsequent books and having success and, articulating your inner world or your imagination, whatever it is, is, is that like, are you like, fuck you to all the people in your, in your childhood who might not have been kind to you or who might not have expected such big things from you? Is there that element of it? I mean, they're the ones who put it there, but these, um, uh, this perceived hostility is not something that even exists except for in my own head. Mostly, you know, I mean, I get nasty comments every now and then on, or tepid reviews or whatever, 
but really it's just um, this deeply internalized sense that uh, I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm not good enough. I can't pull it off. Uh, that I'm trying to spite, right? Um, and in that sense, I'm spiting myself. Yeah. You have to break through so much self-doubt. Like just, I, I think that the the length of time that it takes to write a book, even if it's a book that shoots out of you in like six months or a year, yeah. it's still a pretty long time. And most books take much longer than that. And in the course of writing those, there are going to be dark days where it seems like all is lost or days where you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Or days when you look back and you've just written 60 pages that aren't really worth a shit. You know, you have to sort of muscle through all that. That's yeah. a, it's the same for everybody, I think. Right, yeah. And if you can have that s serene, uh, long view detachment from uh, everything that you care about, um, then you're a Buddhist, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, speaking of which, do you have any kind of uh, spiritual... Uh, no, I'm an atheist. Total atheist. Yeah, um, which is not to say that I... You know, I've thought about this a lot. Um, I don't think that religious people are misguided or stupid. Um, I think that... Uh, the whole new atheism movement, you know, the one that's represented by people like Richard Dawkins or um, Sam, I can't remember. His Harris. Name. Harris, right. Um, is, uh, and surprisingly, Christopher Hitchens, who's a, a literary man, um, they they never reckon with religion as a literature uh, in the same way that literature is important to human culture uh, and can have a, a meaningful, profound effect on uh, an individual person. Uh they never criticize it. For, I mean, they criticize it. They take the easy shots, which are, yes, it's like they're made up stories. So it's fiction, you know. Yes, they're like, um, it, it's dogmatic adherence um, can be uh, violent and um, harm children, you know. And of course, yeah, I think that those are all legitimate criticisms. That's not a reason to throw the baby out with the bathwater, especially when uh, this baby is the foundation of most of Western civilization. Well, they had culture, I'll say. Yeah, I mean, I think like uh, for me, a lot of it is like, like I, I don't participate in a really like overt way in any religion. Like I don't go to any kind of church, but it's like what, what always loses me is the mythology. But underneath the mythology and a lot of the, uh, the kind of surface level stuff, there is like a long tradition of um, sincere well-meaning people who tried to figure out uh, the best way to live. And there's a lot of hard work that went into it that is, is buried in there somewhere. Right. And it's worth mining. I mean, or, you know, even if you don't join up, it's not like there's nothing of value there. And it's, and I think they would maybe argue like, well, you can get that stuff independent of the religion. Yeah. And I think that's probably right. I true. Mean, it's, it's, it's more simply put, you can just say that, um, if you orient yourself towards religion and religious texts and practices as a literature, uh, you're, you're not going to get in trouble. Like um, uh, if you if you see the Bible as a rule book, then then you get into trouble. Then you then you can um, run the risk of becoming uh, an ideologue. Right. If you if like reading a novel, you say this part worked for me, this part didn't, this part worked for me, this didn't or whatever, then um it can really benefit you. Right. But you don't have any interest in that. I mean, do you, you don't, you don't like read about Buddhism or read about Christianity or, I don't know. I mean, I took all of Marilyn Robinson's, um, uh, Bible seminars in, uh, at Iowa. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, I've read like a couple of, uh, religious texts, but not really, um, any, like I said, any differently than I would read a novel. What do you think? Um, do you have any idea what happens when we die? You just think like, that's it lights out. Yep. 
that's okay with you? No, it, it should be okay <laughs> with anybody. It's terrible. But, um, you know, uh, it's, that's not something that, um, uh, that's not something that I'm going to see changed in my lifetime. You know, um, I just, I, I, I make this weird correction because I just finished reviewing zero K the down to little novel, which is about cryonics. Uh-huh. Um, and that, you know, I can actually foresee a future where through some weird intersection of um, cybernetics and post-human, uh, you know, exit of meat space through technology, um, people end up trans- transcending a sort of mortal form. I can see that. Yeah. Um, if Don DeLillo saying it, then it's probably going to come true. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, uh, it should bother anybody who thinks about it. Um, the, but part of being an adult is is having that not completely paralyze you right um and uh knowing people who have died and and knowing people who've had uh, like very close family members die and seeing that they can actually uh, carry on and and pick things up after that um makes it very clear to me that at least in principle um you know uh the existence of death is not is is not an end-all be-all um where, where it fits in your own life right yeah, I mean it's a, it's the big thing for everybody ultimately. Yeah, trying this is to sort totally of, not what I thought I was going to be talking about today. Well, that's the way this show goes. I didn't have my <laughs> I didn't have my like cheat sheet. <laughs> it's a big question. I like to ask it of people though. I'm always yeah. curious because like, Wait, so do you believe in an afterlife? I don't believe there's any such thing as death. Uh, so Buddhist. Yeah. Okay. I don't think. I mean, and I think that there's an. I mean, it seems objectively provable to me that birth and death are happening every second. Yeah. And that one. Like it's a duality, just like happiness and suffering or dark and light, birth and death. Um, one begets the other and that, you know, really they're happening at the cellular level every single second. Yeah. So I'm dying right now. You're dying right now. Right. Cells in our body are dying and then replenishing. And right. I don't know. But, uh, you know, what bothers most people is the fact that their specific individual subjectivity will cease, that they will stop feeling things and think things as themselves because they treasure this idea of an identity right Right. which um, is which is a but, a but the buddhist would say is a false perception that that uh the individual self is an actual false perception oh yeah i would too i would um, I, I feel that way but i mean that doesn't mean that i'm not going to be terrified when i die <laughs> <laughs> now you know, it's, a, it's a hard thing to sort of disavow or to like in in practice live yeah you know what i'm saying it's one thing to understand it intellectually it's another thing to be like okay yeah. i thought i one. thought your the name of your podcast was like a slide is is like a sly way of of calling it hell. What? You know? Oh yeah, hell is other people. Right. No, I you know I think that the actual origin story, which I've talked about once or twice, you know I think is uh, years ago, like at the in the the dawn of uh, I don't know, not the dawn, but the early years of blogging or whatever in social media. I was thinking of creating an online magazine called Other People, just as like a, a riff on the magazine uh, on People magazine. Oh. Because it was like, who are these people in People magazine? I want, you know, what about other people? That was the, I mean, it was it was nothing that I really put a ton of energy into. But I always just thought that would be a funny name for a magazine. And then when I was starting my podcast, I was like, well, I'm going to be talking to other people, and that that's really it. So it wasn't <laughs> so no Sartre and no, 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 nothing, at all. nothing that uh, you know, high minded. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's like it's a it's an ongoing thing, and it's trying to uh, make peace with it, not lose my shit. Um, yeah, I think have courage. How much do you think about it on a day to day basis? Uh, more than the average person. 
I would guess. But then again, how do I know what the average person is thinking about? Right. What about you? I know some really death-obsessed people. I don't actually, um, except as a uh, vague organizing principle uh, that guides a lot of um, you know your decisions about what to do and how to spend your time, what like life paths to make. It's not something that um, you know. I don't picture myself lying interred in a coffin, um, you know, in in total darkness. You know, that's not stuff that I dwell on, uh, mostly because how much dwelling can you do? Like after having done a certain amount of like considering the end and what what it's likely to be and feel like, um, how does it benefit you other than um, sort of morbid wound? Poking, yeah, know? no, yeah. Like it's not a morbid thing. I think that just in a as an as a reminder, it's like a uh, a daily or semi daily refresher of just like okay, uh, time is precious. It's that kind of thing. Use yeah. use it well. Don't waste your time. Don't fuck around doing things that uh, don't mean anything to you. So that's so. This is a uh, important point because people often say, and nobody will disagree that um, you you know don't waste your time, right? But um, can you waste time? You know, like uh, a lot of people would argue that writing literary fiction for a relatively small, culturally marginal audience um, that's, <laughs> you know, that may or may not even be good when you when you actually finish it um, is an enormous waste of time. Some people will say that reading fiction is an enormous waste of time. Some people know? would say time is just a mental construct. It's an illusion. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what the fuck I'm wasting. So, right, you know, yeah, exactly. I, think, uh, I was listening to, I should say, I was listening to an interview with Gary Shandling where he made a joke along those lines, uh, which made me laugh. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, it, it's more just like trying to live well, trying to find a system of thought or a, uh, some sort of practice that uh, helps me to do that. And again, not super ideological, not interested in mythology. The mythology just never has done it for me. Mm -hmm. It just seems, I don't know. And as somebody who loves story, maybe that's a little odd, but I guess that when that story is then tied to a belief or is used as a justification for uh, behaviors or like moral justifications, it starts to get freaky to me. You know? Yeah. And I mean, I can definitely see why, um, uh, mythologies created millennia ago. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a, it's a it's a problem that that churches think about too. How they, these things are actually important to people in the way that they're living now, because a lot of things are uh, significantly different in a way that in, in, impacts your moral judgments. You know, um, Jesus didn't live in a globalized economy, for example. <laughs> no. You know, uh, he is his. Uh, there's a reason why his like. Uh, ethics don't include like a long sermon on uh, consumption, right? Uh, but something that we could really use now. Uh, right? No kidding. And so, you know, we have to keep on making literature. That's right. right. Adding to it. It is sort of strange though, because like, you know, I feel like literature is something that is sort of evergreen, you know, like for all of the talk of how it could be an enormous waste of time and how it's sort of culturally marginalized and all this stuff. Like, there's no shortage of people writing books and there's no shortage of people wanting to write down their stories. I mean, this stuff is, is as um, important to people as maybe it's ever been. Yeah. And but like, then, you know, we're faced then with an anxiety of choice, right? Where with everybody um, uh, having something to say and everybody basically becoming their own media platform um, uh, or at, least, at the very least like a brand. Yeah. Uh, Boy, do I hate that. But yeah, I know. Yeah. And, uh, you know who? Who then do you trust? 
Uh, do you trust people who are aggregating these like several voices and synthesizing them in some way? Possibly an algorithm that's doing this, you know? Uh, do you uh, uh, trust just mainly people who agree with you on um, predetermined stances, whether political or cultural? You know, um, uh, that that ends up becoming a problem in itself. That the the, the multiplicity of voices. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, like I guess maybe the. The uh, the cream rises to the top, you know, like uh, maybe there's some sort of I mean, uh, then again, I don't the know if I believe the top of what. And also, like, I don't know if I even believe that because I, I, it seems to me in a world with the, this kind of multiplicity of choice, there have to be like great works of literature that are just on somebody's know, hard right. drive. Or, you like know. Gangnam Style rises to the top, yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, right. It's true. But I mean, but uh, this is something I think about a lot. Just in, um, uh, now that we have a certain setup with the way that a culture is disseminated, um, what do people end up thinking about, talking about, thinking is important? Um, and what I've basically settled on is that um, we've all seemed to have passively come up with this idea of relevance, of something being clickbaity or, or interesting um, in its own right. And relevance seems to me mainly determined by just the, uh, the raw volume and, and uh number of people who are talking about a certain thing uh you know whether like the dress for example uh the dress, oh, right. the all, dress what color is the dress yeah, that if thing it's blue or black or white or gold the most trivial possible question you could think of um but simply by virtue of the fact that everybody was talking about it at the exact same time it becomes relevant and important uh it's uh something that if you haven't heard about this or have not weighed in on it uh, makes you less relevant um by by extension, you know, and I've, I've talked about this before that this is why the ALS ice bucket challenge became a big thing, not because anybody sincerely cared about, you know, <laughs> curing Lou Gehrig's disease, but because it gave them a, a, a means to, to, to add to this uh, conversation, to participate in it and to have, have the sort of halo of relevant relevance, um, uh, you know, did you do them. it? No, no, neither did I. Yeah. I mean, not like nothing against Lou Gehrig's disease, but I was like, "What the fuck is ever like Gwyneth Paltrow's dumping a bucket of ice on her head? Why?" Anna Wintour, that one surprised me, you know. <laughs> and again, you know, uh, because it's done for this um, good cause, you can't criticize it, really. You know, they objectively raised millions and millions of dollars for this um, for this thing. Yeah. Uh, but it, uh, knowing now that there's a, a provable track record of this kind of thing um, getting people's attention effectively, and getting people to open their wallets. Um, it's, you know, it's only a matter of time until it becomes successfully reverse engineered. And um, people who want to uh, uh, get a certain message out um, can avail themselves of this as a mechanism of control. Um, Jesus. You know, it's... Uh, it's a bright thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. This, well, the thought that everybody is... Uh, somehow the agenda of, of what they think and talk about is going to be set by the dress, you know? Yeah, well, uh, but, but that's, then, the, that's the big, I mean, that really is like one of the big subtexts of internet use period for everyone, especially those of us who are out there trying to push a book or whatever it is. Yeah. It's like, how do I reverse engineer this? How do I get, how do I cut through the noise? Right. And right now it's just mostly a sort of interesting thing to think about. It's interesting that we've um, collectively put this together without any, um, you know, explicit agreement. Um, we participated in it sort of gladly. Um, we even have a, a punctuation for it, you know, the hashtag. Yeah. Um, but, 
yeah, I'm just waiting for that day when the other shoe falls and, um, you know, people start bending it towards more sinister ends. Well, on that note, Tony, <laughs> it's been really fun talking with you. Yeah, I, appreci- really I appreciate you coming it's over. It's my first podcast. Oh, it is? Yeah. Wow. I feel honored. Um, yeah. Congrats on the book. Uh, best of luck at AWP this weekend. Thank you. And uh, I wish you well on the next four projects, which you are currently working on simultaneously. <laughs> I just remembered that I was on a, a, another podcast, so oh shit! Just just add, stick that in in the end. <laughs> uh, editor's note: I feel less special now, but yeah. whatever. Yeah, I'm glad to be your second uh, podcast interview. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right, guys, that is Tony Tula Tamudi. Go get his novel. It's called Private Citizens. Out there now from William Morrow. You can uh, find Tony online at TonyTula.com. That's Tony and then T-U-L-A.com. He's on Twitter, where his handle is at TonyTula. He's also on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Likewise, check out Bud Smith's new novella. It's called I Am From Electric Peak, or I'm From Electric Peak. It's available now from Artistically Declined Press. I'm From Electric Peak, Bud Smith. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for the music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. The Other People with Brad Listy podcast has its own official app. The app is free. Go get the app wherever you get your apps. Get it on your device. It's the best way to listen to this program. Uh, You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. The latest episode, uh, the most recent episode, always automatically uh, uploads to your device. You don't have to do anything. It just happens. User-friendly. Convenient. Elegant. So you get the most recent 50 for free, and then if you want to uh, access everything, if you want, like, everything, all of the episodes, more than 400 and counting, you can sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. It costs 75 cents a month. You get access to everything available at your fingertips anywhere you go. It's a really good deal. Great way to support the podcast. Hope you do that. If you want to uh, email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you think about the whispering. (laughs) Is that something you want to see continued? Did I wow you? Did I break new ground? In the podcasting medium? Did I create a small revolution? Will this episode one day be looked back upon as a watershed moment? I just want to say that I'm done with the election. I'm so done. I'm not usually done in April in an election year. I'm done. I don't care. Just get it over with. Just fucking make it stop. Christ. And make sure that Bernie or Hillary wins. I don't care who. Just one of them. None of this crazy bullshit. Can't take it. Please remember that uh, Tobias Smollett died of tuberculosis and that Nietzsche, writing about George Sand, called her, quote, a writing cow. It's not very nice. What do you think about that? That's all for now. Thanks to uh, Bud Smith. Thanks to Tony Tulatamudi. And thanks to you guys for listening. I always appreciate that. I really do. I hope you're doing well. And I will be back here next week with another conversation with another uh, writerly narratively inclined human being or human beings I could have more than one guest you don't know what's coming at you 
That's what's crazy about this. I could do anything. I'm on the edge. <laughs> <laughs>